Good to be with you. Uh, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and grab it. Go to the uh, Gospel according to Luke. We're going to be in chapter 11. Uh, that's where we'll uh, land this morning. I just want to go over just a, a few uh, brief things. If you guys are new, if this is your uh, first time, just, just welcome. We're, we're thrilled that you're here. This is very simply a service where we want to worship uh, one person, one person alone, who is Jesus. We believe that Jesus was God's son, that he did come and he did live the perfect life and he did die the payment and debt necessary to absorb the wrath of God and to pay for sin. And he rose again, validating that, that he gives his spirit to those who are his so they can live lives that honor him and please him and bring him great glory. So um, that's why we sing songs. That's why we take the Lord's Supper. That's why we pray. That's why we preach because we believe that our God is a God who demands and deserves worship and finds joy in that. And through our worship of him, we are filled with joy as well. Uh, before we kind of run into uh, the book of Luke, I just want to give uh, three um, just kind of, uh, I guess, words of information. One is um, there's someone in this room who, who tremendously uh, gave, I mean, tons of hours till almost 2, 3 in the morning for weeks to try and help uh, this thing sound right. And he never gets acknowledged. He never gets a thank you. Uh, so would you thank Leo in the back for all that he's been doing? Um, no. <laughs> Listen, nobody, nobody has any idea how hard his job is, okay? So if, if you're that guy that you majored in math, but you're now a tech major, go back there and just try running service for one Sunday. Uh, it is very, very difficult. So he has been working very hard at helping uh, this new space we're in work right and sound right. Uh, he's been giving so many hours and time. So actually, when you leave, if you could personally thank him, uh, that would probably encourage him. Uh, just thank him for all the work that he's doing and the ways that uh, God's using his gifts uh, so that we can sing, so we can hear so we can proclaim. Um, just two notes of prayer, Ed Stapp, but you guys know Ed Stapp. Um, his brother passed suddenly on Wednesday uh, from a severe heat stroke, so continue to pray for their family. He loved Jesus and knew Jesus, so we're thankful that he's with him, uh, but there's still the grief and mourning of losing uh, those that you love, so pray for the Stapp family. And then um, Pastor McKinney and his wife, they're expecting really any day, so uh, Karen's here. You're like giving birth right now. I'm hoping that this service helps uh, the baby come because uh, I think you're now, what, a day late, or you're, like, right on schedule. So she, she wants that baby out. So just pray that the baby comes uh, this week, all right, to, to the glory of God. All right, so Luke chapter 11. You have your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the back that you can grab. Um, what we've been doing is walking through this gospel, and here's very simply what it is. If, if you're jumping in kind of uh, right now for the first time, here's what the gospel of Luke is. It's a, a gospel that very simply is trying to um, lay before its hearers, and namely Theophilus, that the life and teachings of Jesus are not just information for us to grow in knowledge of some stuff or more theological reasoning, but so that it actually lays bare on your heart, so that it diffuses your mind, and through understanding the truth, it infuses your heart, which grows affections for the one who saved you. And so um, we're all about transformation here. We're not about training behavior in you. We're about transforming lives, not us transforming them, but seeing Jesus do that, namely through his person and work, which he did on the cross. And so I'm um, here what Jesus is going to do this morning. We're in chapter 11. He's been teaching, healing, sitting, eating, going about, doing ministry, uh, serving. And he kind of turned a corner in chapter 9 where his face is now headed towards Jerusalem where he will ultimately die and pay the debt for sin and rise again. So now he's, he's headed there. He's pretty much done a lot of his teaching. He's still teaching, but a lot of who he was is finished. He's given all you need to know to know that he is the Messiah. He's given you all you need to know that he is the Son of God. So now as he's headed there, there, 
some different scenarios come up, all to teach us, but teach us in a different weight. And he, here's what he's doing. He's drawn a line in the sand. Okay, Jesus is now drawing a line in the sand, going, there's no, like, middle ground to walk on when it comes to Jesus and those who are his and those who are not his. There are actually only two kingdoms that exist. There's the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. There's no, like, middle kingdom of purple, okay? Like, there's no middle place you can land. You either love Jesus and are his, or you don't love Jesus and you're against Jesus and you're one of the kingdom of darkness. And so last week, if you were here, we saw how only Jesus' shed blood can deliver you from the demonic. Right? Only he alone makes a public spectacle of them and disarms them and drops them naked in front of us that we can live in courage and live in victory over that which used to enslave. And that was great news that we saw. And so this morning, here's what Jesus is going to get into, and he's going to lay before you a parable. A a parable is very simply just a a story or an illustration to describe a theological concept. Jesus does that a lot. So here's what he's basically going to say this morning. You living a moral life is probably more dangerous than living a blatant immoral life. Some of you guys are like, I came to church, right? I mean, I thought church was about trying to be good and look fashionable and obey certain rules and legislation and laws, and we're here because we're supposed to be all clean and pretty, and we worship God. We don't ever reveal sin. We don't ever confess. We don't ever let people see the dirty secrets inside, right? That's actually not at all what the church is meant to be. So Jesus is going to show if you go about your life living based upon your merits, your works, your external doing, and it's not tethered to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's actually a damn place to be. That's actually a frightening place to be, okay? Happy Sunday, okay? Glad you guys came this morning. So this is where we're going to land. The Pharisees are here. The scribes have been teaching. Hate has been growing in their hearts. If you've been following, the Pharisees was that kind of group of teachers that all had a scribe, and they were basically teaching the law. They were the religious elite of the day, and their hatred has been growing over time because Jesus has been attacking their self-righteousness. He's been going after this, God and I are okay based on how I behave, we know that God and us are not okay at all based on how we behave. It's based upon the righteousness Jesus gives us, not the righteousness that we perform. And so that's why this has all been growing. Tension's been growing. And in that, Jesus speaks the truth. You know, whenever you speak the truth, people lash out, right? In our culture and society, everybody's great until you say something true, right? And as soon as you lay before them the truth, they get angry, they get frustrated. So this is what Jesus has been doing. And last week, we saw the effects. Their hatred was growing so Deeply, they started attributing his works to Satan. They started saying, oh, he must be doing this, being possessed by the demonic. And we saw Jesus totally strip that idea and reform what what he was really doing. And if you remember, Jesus ended last week with this invitation. He said, whoever's not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so the question's going to be this morning, what does it mean to be with Jesus then? What does it mean to be with Jesus and not scatter from Jesus? What does it mean to be gathered by Jesus and not not gathered by Jesus? So Jesus is going to answer that right here. Verse 24, he's going to lay before us an illustration. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Okay, very, very straightforward from Jesus. An unclean spirit, this is a Jewish term for a demon, okay, is possessing somebody. 
and eventually he decides to leave, and because demon, the demonic work through people, right, and they're trying to find somebody, it's getting restless, it's out in the, the, the waterless realm, the spiritual realm, eventually it finds, you know, somebody, but it's unsettled when the guy tries to clean up his life, so it leaves, but eventually comes back because the, the house is swept and clean up externally, there's a superficial cleansing, but it's void of the presence of God, so he brings seven others back that are more evil than itself and possesses the person. Hey, this is just the basic, basic story. This is the, the scenario. And he says the scenario on the back end is worse than the front end. Okay, when the guy was just kind of living in wickedness and, and not really trying to be good to achieve righteousness, that was actually okay for him. And that kind of caused the demon to leave. Well, the problem was he tried to clean up his life by all of his merits and all of his works, and the demon saw that, and it kicked the door open for the demonic. Is that crazy? And that's what Jesus is explaining here. So here's what Jesus is doing. He's describing the person who doesn't realize the danger of living a moral life apart from the saving life of Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's what he's revealing to us. That's what he's showing us. So he's showing that you are actually, by pursuing a moral life apart from the broken body and shed blood of Jesus... That's kicking the door open for the demonic. And here's why. You can't defeat Satan by morality. You can't defeat Satan by spirituality. You can't defeat Satan and his adversaries by religion, right? Those are all demonic deceptions. We talked about that two weeks ago, how, how we're not about spirituality. We're about Jesus, okay? And, and the spirituality is just a worship of demons and other forms if it's not tied to Jesus and his personal work. And so here you have the demonic influence. And here's what, what, what I, I have to lay before you. A lot of people think when they think of demon possession, you think foaming at the mount head doing a 360, you think exorcist that you saw or something crazy. You, you know what a Satan's greatest tactics and deceptions is make you so good all the way to hell? Just serve and attend and just be so pretty on the outside while you're a whitewashed tomb all the way not realizing that you're actually damning yourself by all the stuff you're trying to do to make you righteous. And that, that's the beauty of the scriptures is that Someone did come, and there is one man who can defeat Satan and disarm his authority and powers, and that man is Jesus. And Jesus doesn't need an army, right? Jesus does it alone because he's God. And so he's the only one who sets us free. So here is what's happening. This might be you this morning. Um, This is the picture of someone who begins to feel the effects of their sin. Right now, I, I don't know what the reasoning is, because it's, a, it's, a, it's an illustration, but maybe you just want to clean your conscience, maybe you just want peace of mind, so, so you decide to clean yourself up. You decide to try to get rid of some of these sins, so you hold off on the adultery, you suppress your anger, you avoid pornography for a season, right? You go to AA, you go to therapy, you do all the right things to try and put band-aids on the sin sickness that is in your soul, right? Because we're all born by nature and choice sinners, so, so you can't cure that by any behavior modification. You can't can't change that or cure that by any moralism, right? It's impossible. And so, so this is the person who attempts to do that. And at first, the, the demonic is a little restless at that, so it leaves the person. And then what happens is, is the person continues to do that. It does that apart from the personal work of Jesus, and it sees that, so it brings seven back. Because you're either possessed by the kingdom of darkness or possessed by the kingdom of light. And the person is the house, so they make their home in this person who believes that they can be righteous, not based on what Christ does, but solely on what they do. So the man is still a refuge for this person. 
Now here's what I want to show you, Matthew 12, just to get this, just to make this really clear, okay, before we start speeding up. Matthew 12, he includes a word that is so important, same account that helps you understand this reality. Matthew 12, verse 44, it's the same account, he says this, then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty. Okay, Luke doesn't say empty, but Matthew says empty. Empty, swept, and put in order. It finds the house empty, void of the purifying presence of God. That, that, is, that is right there, the damning nature of moralism that's not tied to Jesus Christ. You try to do it all yourself, but you're not filled with the Holy Spirit. You're not filled with the Holy Ghost. You're not purified by Jesus. You're not one with him. He does not dwell inside of you. It's empty, right? This is moralistic behavior. That's the, that, 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 that right there is showing a moralistic heart and soul that is cleaned but left empty. So if you're cleaning yourself up but you're left empty, void of the presence of God, you're living a delusion. You think that you're making ground, you're covering space, when really all of those secret sins and those things you're trying to defeat and kill and put to death always come back because you're going at your behavior, you're going at branches, and you're not getting at the root. Right, you have to go to the heart which changes behavior, not behavior which changes your heart. That's what Jesus is explaining. It's a superficial cleansing. Externally, the person used to behave one way, they stopped behaving that way. Maybe they got behind some awesome cause, motivated others. But by doing so, you're in a more dangerous position than before. Why? Because you're living with delusion that somehow you're okay because you look better. I always say the good news is not to make you a better, nicer person. That's awful news. The good news is that you can't be good and someone is good and perfect for you and makes you righteous and spotless and blameless. This is why the message of the church can never simply be morality. Hear me? Like, like the message of the church of Jesus Christ can never simply be you do and you don't do. That can never be because that's going to slowly sow into you if it's not tied to the beauty that is Jesus taking your sin, the wrath-absorbing cross of Jesus Christ, bearing the weight of all that, being a substitute for you in your place, his blood cleansing you of your sin. If you're not tied to that always, constantly going back to that, then you're going to be living this delusion that, that, well, God and I are okay this week, and that's why you find yourself frustrated, and you live in this strange place where you only run to God and presume when things are good, and you flee from him when things are bad, and then you come back to him when you think you're better. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ living. That's not what it means to live as a Christian. We run to him in the joy. We run to him in the sin. We run to him in the condemnation that he died for us in. He didn't die for you when you were somehow living okay. He didn't wait for, you know, week five in the, the end of March or May where he said, hey, actually, he looks pretty good. Actually, he's kind of behaved well. Maybe I'll purchase him now. Jesus says, I purchased you in your rebellion, right, brothers and sisters? I mean, those of us who are purchased by God, we know that that is the beauty of our citizenship and of our identity. Isn't that great news? That God loves me today in the state I'm in right now. That yesterday, as I was short with my wife, as we were driving back from Virginia, and I'm going, I should have never done this wedding, and I can't believe we're doing this, and I'm, I'm frustrated, and I'm tired, and we're, God loves me there. God makes me righteous in that moment. He doesn't wait for me to be the perfect husband. He loves me in that state, which continues to transform me. So if you do that long enough, 
and think that all that you do makes you right before God, what it does over time is it numbs your soul and it makes you a worshiper of self. And so that the God becomes you. And you love worshiping yourself because you're looking at all your achievements and all the actions and all the attributes that you think you deserve. Here's the good news before we move on to verse 27. If you're in this room and you're identifying with the hard heart of the Pharisee, the gospel of grace is hard enough to break through that. Right? It did that with the Apostle Paul. What does Paul say? If you're familiar with the scriptures, he was one who blasphemed the church, who tried to kill Christians, and God rescued him and ransomed him and made him a lover of the church, a preacher for the church. It's beautiful. Church isn't made up of righteous people. It's made up of repentant sinners. If you're wondering what the church is, that's what it is. So as you look around the room, you're in really good company. We're all messed up. <laughs> Isn't that good news? Like you got other husbands near you that, that weren't a great husband this weekend. Isn't that good news for you as, as, a, as a mom who feels like, man, I'm just struggling and my parent, my kids well, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. You know, you got tons of moms in this room. If you guys got together, you'd have a fiesta over your failures, right? And you'd celebrate that Jesus is good and Jesus is enough and Jesus is sufficient even in those times of failing. So, so we all come together broken, one big, goofy, beautiful mess that loves Jesus and celebrates Jesus because he's the one who makes us righteous. He's the one who, who declares us that way because of his work. So he gets all the glory, all the praise. That's why we sing the songs. That's why we shout out his name. That's why we are coming in joy. Not because we had a great week or a bad week, but because Jesus always gives us what we need and he always gives us his necessary substituted life. And this is why... Luke transitions to transformation. Now, it's going to seem a little bit problematic, but we're going to do a little bit of work. So verse 27, Luke is going to transition from, this is true, this is what you got to be aware of, and now it's going to seem like he shifts to, hey, but you got to do. Okay, verse 27, he says this, and he said these things, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word and keep it. So during all of this, this woman yells out this Middle Eastern expression that is basically this honorable thing of blessed is your mother because she gave birth to you because you're blessing us. She's giving Jesus praise. She respects him. She reveres him. And Jesus' response seems a bit problematic. Jesus looks, and Jesus says, and he doesn't, he doesn't contradict her, but he also doesn't confirm her statement. He corrects her. Blessed rather are those who hear the word and keep it. He uses her question as a springboard to answer the question that I talked about in the beginning of who, who, what does it mean to be with Christ? What does it mean to not be one who scatters but one that gathers? And he answers it. Blessed are those who hear the word and keep it. 
Now, we already know he made it clear. It doesn't mean to be with Jesus that you just look right, that you're morally good, that you live this life of morality that's better than your neighbor, your grass is shorter, your yard's cleaner, you take out your trash more, your marriage is better. We, we already got clear. That's not what it means to be with Jesus. But now he says this other thing here, which might seem problematic, where he says to be with me doesn't simply mean that you respect me either. It doesn't simply mean you revere me. Right? It doesn't simply mean you have good feelings about me. It means that you hear what I say and you do it. Right? You're not driven by fear. You're driven by security and love and what I've done in the cross of Jesus Christ that drives you to obedience because you know I'm for your joy. I'm for deepest of life. I'm for your marriage. I'm for flourishing. I'm for all of these things. So you do. That shows that you have allegiance to me. And I love this because You'll see throughout the scriptures, Jesus will say in John 15, right? I mean, if you love me, you obey my commands. He'll say in 1 John, but these commands aren't burdensome to you. It's not begrudging submission. It's actually you being so secure in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf that ought to lead you to action, that ought to lead you to obedience. I hear people all the time say, well, how come the cults are so much more committed Right, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. Or, no, it, they have to do those things to get a desired result. If they don't do those things, they might not achieve being a god or get their 70 virgins or whatever you want to call it. It's fear that drives them, whereas the scriptures teach it's the kindness of God. It's the great love of God that ought to lead us to a life of repentance that, that flows from a life of obedience. It, it's amazing. It's not fear that drives you. It's actually God's love. You are so secure that God loves you that that you love obeying him. Like you're so secure in the finished work of Christ on your behalf that you can't not obey. Like you guys know what that's like with parents, right? I mean, if, if you just know in the deepest part of your being that your mom and your dad are for you and that they love you and that they only give guardrails to protect you and they give you freedoms to lead you into deeper life and deeper flourishing, you, you want to obey that. You know they're not trying to take from you. You know they're actually trying to give generously to you. That's why the Bible teaches us that we're not just a slave that is loved when we do what is right. We're a son and daughter that's loved even in those times that we rebel. And it's because of Christ. Here's a piece that you've got to understand. If if you're ever going to take, if you're a Christian and you're ever going to take seriously obeying God while simultaneously feeling ultimately safe in God's arms, there's a theology you have to believe. And you've heard it your whole life if you've been churched. You ready? He loves you. Did you hear what I said? You, hold on. Because you know yourself, right? You know your secret sins. You know the baggage that is you. You know your past. In that, he loves you. There was this guy, Benjamin Warfield. I don't know if you've heard of him. Great theologian. He wrote commentaries. You know, people asked him on his deathbed, what is the greatest thing you've ever grown to learn and all that you've written and all the things you've studied and all the texts of scripture that you've meditated on, what is the most grand thing you've ever 
come across. You know what he said? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Does that stagger you in the morning? Because I'll tell you what, I know Mike Reed, and I can't believe that's true. And it's a daily fight to believe that's true, not based on how I behave, but based upon the purchasing work of Jesus. He's for you. So you can feel safe in God's arms as you run with abandon in obedience for the joy of your soul and glory of God. He's for you. 1 John 3 sums this up well. It says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So Jesus said to be his, to be one of his own, to be adopted is to obey his word. You're not achieving adoption by obedience, but it demonstrates that you're one of his by your obedience to him. And then he shows you one of the primary ways you define that you're his is obedience in the son. By trusting in the son who is Jesus Christ, right? You, that, that's one of the fundamental ways that you obey is you hear him say, hey, man, there's wrath coming, there's destruction coming, there's damnation coming for those apart from the saving work of my son. You can turn to him, you can trust in him. When you believe in him, that is the first act of obedience you take from the sovereign God of all things that purchases you into his family. And then it rolls into a lifelong life of just obeying out of joy and not begrudging submission. This is incredible to see here. And here's what's amazing. So to be his is not simply having good feelings. He acknowledged that in the woman. It's giving him allegiance. And look, when you do that, your house isn't empty. Remember the problem back with the man who tried to clean himself up on the outside? He just had a superficial cleansing. What happened? He swept it up, cleaned it up, but he left it empty. There was no greater power residing in him. And here we see, when we trust in the risen Son of Jesus Christ, what indwells you, the Holy Spirit of God abides in you. It purchases you. It guarantees your inheritance. It solidifies you as the temple of God. So the demonic has no authority over you. You are transferred from that kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And the Holy Spirit of God confirms it. You're now not empty, you're full. You're not walking around unpossessed by nothing. You're possessed by God. Amazing. Now this is gonna lead into, as we land the plane, maybe some of you are living in the powerlessness of knowing the truth and never applying it. So you're constantly that Christian who walks around going, I don't understand why I'm not experiencing God. I don't understand why I'm not seeing his work. I don't understand why I'm not defeating sin. I don't understand why sin isn't, isn't being killed and destroyed like I read in the scriptures. I mean, I, I see I'm supposed to put it to death. I see I'm supposed to clothe myself with righteousness. Why isn't that happening? Well, Jesus says, mere listening doesn't prove anything. Just mere listening doesn't equate to belief. I mean, some, some people, most people come to church, they just love to listen, Right? They never want to leave walking in obedience. They just want to listen. And hear me. 
you growing and experiencing more of the depths of Jesus Christ and his person and work, you experiencing more of the freedoms that are found in the gospel of Jesus Christ has much more to do with you practicing what you already know. So many people are like, man, just teach me something new. I want to learn a new theology. I want to learn a new cute trick. I want to hear some higher story. No, no. Hey, guess what? For years you've been taught things that you refuse to listen to and walk in the power of that truth. We grow amnesia. It's insane. I mean, here's Benjamin Warfield on his deathbed giving us a nursery rhyme, right? I mean, I want something profound. Okay, hey, give me something that I haven't heard, man, in the Greek and Hebrew, I don't know, maybe something from the Septuagint, just Aramaic, I don't know, give me something really grand. And what does he, what does he lay before us? Something so simple, yet something so profound. A truth we've heard since our kids' ministry days, if you've grown up in the church. I can be sure of Jesus' affections for me, not based upon anything that I do, but based upon what he's done for me. Oh, I want to move on now. Give me something new. No, no. No, no. Stay there until you understand that. And so here Jesus is rolling this out that intellectually all day long we can talk about things, but there might be no evidence in your life of wiring it according to Jesus. Maybe your life is a constant life of excuses as to why or why not. So let me help us. Let's land the plane with three things I'm going to give us. Do a little bit of work for us, okay? Because I think we can read this and think it's problematic, okay? I want to help us understand briefly how do we, because he's talking about now maturing. 27 and 28 is growing in Christ's likeness, experiencing more of the depth and beauty that is Jesus. How do we do that without falling into a moralistic life to try and earn the grace that's already been freely given, right? Because do you see both those dichotomies apparently in the text? The answer is yes. Okay, so you see both those apparently in the text, right? But, but there's, a, there's a good line to walk, and there's a reason Jesus gives us both these. So let me give us just three things, and these aren't inspired, but they're from the Lord, and I'm going to use three scriptures. The first one is, you've been given a new heart and a new mind. Look at what 1 Corinthians 2 says. Now, we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. All of a sudden, when you became a Christian, you would desire to know the Lord, seek the Lord, pursue the Lord, and make much of the Lord. Here's what I want you to understand. That cannot be manufactured from an unredeemed heart. Like if you're in here and you're not a Christian and you're trying just to be moral and you're trying just to behave better, but you haven't been made new, you haven't been given a new heart, a new mind like the scriptures say, you're just trying to climb out over us with no rope and no warm clothes and you're going to die at the top. You've got no hope of doing anything good. So it's got to be tethered to what Jesus has done. So what you have to remember, those of us in this room who are Christians, is you've been given a new mind and a new heart. That's true for you. I mean, Ephesians 2, Colossians 2, we saw it last week. You were dead in your sin, you were made alive together with Jesus Christ. That's true for you. 
I mean, you got Nicodemus and John. What does he say? Man, what, what does it take to be saved? How can I have eternal life? And Jesus says, oh, you got to be born again. And John not underst- or Nicodemus not understanding that. It's like, do I have to jump back in my mother's womb? No. He explains it's, a, re- it's a, a spiritual birth. There's a physical birth and a spiritual rebirth that has to happen. And so what happens is Romans 1 says, until this happens in your life, you buy the lie versus the truth. And one day the Holy Spirit of God, as you repent of your sin and turn to Jesus, is illuminated, it's awakened, and you see him for all that he is, and you are driven to obedience out of glad submission to him for the joy of your soul. It's not manufactured. You're not trying to create it. You're not trying to make it happen. So you got to find out where you are on the spectrum. You're either not in the fold of God or you are in the fold of God. If you're not in the fold of God, you need a new heart and a new mind. Don't start with just doing and obeying and looking at rules and lists. Man, look at Jesus. Looking at him taking your sin and making you righteous. If you're a Christian, don't get into obeying rules, lists, and regulations. Get back to the one who saved you and made you new. And let that fuel your heart towards obedience because he gave you eyes and ears to see and hear. So number one, remember you've been given a new heart and a new mind. Number two, you've been given his Holy Spirit. And that's made very clear from Jesus. You have no power, no ability if your house is empty. Galatians 5, 16, probably heard this text a lot, says this, so I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Let's be honest. The Holy Spirit of God is definitely the forgotten member of the Trinity, right? Like the stepchild or something? Oh, Holy Spirit? Jesus, God the Father, Holy Spirit. Mm. Put him in the closet. No. You know one of the greatest weapons you've been given as a Christian is the Holy Spirit of God? Who indwells you and abides in you? When you were raised with Christ, he not only sees you as holy, spotless, blameless, he gifts you his Holy Spirit. You not only have a new nature with a new mind, you've been given the Holy Spirit of God. That's tremendous power. Now here's, I used to always struggle with, well, I mean, the Holy Spirit has power, but like what's my effort, what's my part in it, how do I access him? I've used this, I think, before. The, The easiest analogy I can give you is that of a treadmill, is... Let's say I wanted to lose weight, which I need to do a little bit. So I go to, I go to the local place, I don't know, that sells, uh, let's go to the, um, what place sells uh, treadmills? Nice, New York Sports Club. No, that's a bad place. I go somewhere that, uh, that sells treadmills, and I'm like, hey, I got to lose weight. Where are your treadmills? Oh, they're right there. This is how they operate. This is what they do. I take it home, put it in my living room, and I just sit on the couch, eat Cheetos, and watch TV for weeks. And it's right there. It's in my possession. I have it. Not going to access it. So I eventually take it back. I'm like, this dumb machine doesn't work. <laughs> right? And they, what would they do? They'd look at me and go, that's weird. Did you get on it? <laughs> no. I didn't get on it. I just possessed it. So let me get this straight. You wanted to see results from this assisting you in losing weight, and you bought it, and you purchased it, and you refused to get on it. Yeah. Same logic with the Holy Spirit. 
Some of you guys are not accessing and pleading that the Holy Spirit of God would be used and work and act in your life. And you're wondering why nothing's going on. I mean, this means in your prayers. This means in your meditation. This means actually appealing to the Holy Spirit of God. Right? He's not just floating around wondering where to work. He indwells you. I mean, if you stopped in the morning and and just thought to yourself as you woke up, the Holy Spirit of the triune God who made all things indwells my body right now. And as you're tempted or you're led into a situation where you don't have wisdom or don't have guidance, you're tempted to act or respond in a certain way, imagine how many more times you would see the active nature of the Holy Spirit as you appeal to that and pray and ask God, man, may the Holy Spirit of God help me here. May he help me to flee from this. Help me help me to run to purity and righteousness. Help me to see and feel and understand and access the Holy Spirit of God that indwells me. It's one of the greatest weapons God has given us in his great gospel. And that's why the moralist never appeals to the Holy Spirit of God and never appeals to their new nature. So they use the law this way. Well, if I obey the law, I get eternal life. If I don't obey the law, I go to hell. Do you see what that does? Both of those are the error that plague evangelicals and plague the Christian circles, which says, I'm going to use the law so I can gain freedom or I'm not going to obey the rules to gain freedom. Both of those scream out, I don't need God. and both leave you lacking on the day of judgment. Last one, number three. So we appeal to our new nature, new mind. We understand we've been given the Holy Spirit of God. And and this last one is very important. And I've found it tremendously fruitful and helpful for me. You don't so much do as much as you pursue. Say that again. You don't spend your life so much doing as much as you should be spending your life pursuing. 2 Timothy 2 says this, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. The fuel in your obedience is not avoiding sin. Like, some of us are just sin managers. We just love managing sin. Well, I got that kind of locked down. Let me move on to this sin. I got that locked down. And you're just trying to avoid sin. Here's the thing. I find most people live the life of avoiding sin and not pursuing anything. Namely, pursuing the very one who breaks them free from their sin. Which is Jesus, right? You're pursuing righteousness. Jesus is, by essence, the perfection of righteousness. You're pursuing love. He's the epitome of love displayed in his cross. You're pursuing peace. He's the only one who can gift you peace because he eternally makes peace by the blood of his son. I mean, you have to be pursuing him as you are fleeing from sin. If you're not doing both of those things, you will see no effect in your life. You'll grow disgruntled, frustrated, angry, bitter, confused, and wonder the rest of your life. So it's not just doing, avoiding, it's pursuing the only one that can break that thing in your life and demonstrated it by making a public spectacle of the rulers and authorities of high places. 
And so, so this, is, this is so, so amazing because what you do when you learn, when you do this, what you learn is you learn where the enemy lies and you learn that he lies not in an external action but an inward idolatry. You start to discover that. You start to see why your heart is moving in certain ways. Because a true understanding goes, what's wrong with my heart? Not, man, what's wrong with my behavior? How do I change it? We start at the heart to change our behavior. So this is what many of us do when we sin. And I'll end with this example. Many of us, when we sin, you've got all your sin here, and your face is buried in all the things you struggle with whether it's your lust, your anxiety, your, your control, your manipulation, you just, you just fill it in the spot, okay? just dump it in the bucket, and you are just there with your faith. And Christ is over here, nowhere near the equation. And so with all your might and all your effort, you're just trying to modify and protect yourself and manage this sin until you've got it, and here's what you're doing when you do this, okay? You've got basically sins that you put in the, the ring that you want to fight each other, right? And none of them is Jesus. None of them is the new nature of a new person, of a new mind and a new heart. None of them is the Holy Spirit. It is one sin versus another sin, so you're going to beat your lust, darn it. You're going to do it by your self-righteous behavior. So you've got self-righteousness and you've got lust, and they kind of battle it off. And if eventually you avoid pornography for a while, self-righteous one. What happens? Sin wins both times. Jesus doesn't win because he's over here. So eventually you find yourself back in the same cycle all over again. You can take, you know, uh, fear and anxiety. Let's say that, that's the, the sin that you're struggling with. You've got it. So what you do instead of resting in Jesus and pushing headlong into Jesus and his gospel and his news, you try to defeat that with, with manipulation and with control. So fear and anxiety are being fought with manipulation and control, and they're battling head to head. And eventually you continue to do that. You put it on your spouse. You put it on your kids. You put it on other people. So what happens? Whatever person wins. Whatever sin wins, it's still sin winning. What you have to do is get your eyes off of what you're fighting and onto Jesus and pursuing Jesus. Get your face in your Bible. He also says, I love it, pursue those who also love God. That's good community. Those who love Jesus, you welcome them into your life. They can spot things you can't see. They point you to the riches that are the gospel news of Jesus Christ, and you keep pushing into good, faithful brothers and sisters. You keep pushing into this good accountability of the cross and person and work of Jesus eventually to where it breaks that thing in your life. Otherwise, you're going to just run the merry-go-round your entire life managing sin. Do you know how exhausting that is? I mean, how many of us still feel like we're just managing sin in our life, and there is no pursuit of the one who bought you and saved you? There is no gazing at the beauty of his cross and his ransoming work? There is no being reminded of the text and scriptures that, of who you are as a child of God and who you are as a redeemed son and daughter? You just every week try to white knuckle, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and get through another seven days till you come to Sunday sermon maybe and live vicariously through the preacher to then think that will last you seven more days. It's exhausting. Brothers and sisters, that's not how God designed this whole thing to work. That's not how you were wired to operate. Man, you've been set free. Yeah, you've been set free. So walk in your freedom. You're no longer a slave to sin. 
if you're in Christ. Walk in your no longer being a slave to sin. Yes, you have the ability to say no to that flirtatious woman at your work that you know might ultimately cause the damnation of your marriage. Yes, you're fully capable of finding greater joy and satisfaction in the covenant he's given you than in a one-second flirtatious moment. Yes, when you are staring at your computer screen and you want to push that button so bad, yes, you're fully capable because you know there's greater joy and love in Jesus than in what you'll see for a few minutes that leaves you more empty and more discouraged and more unsatisfied. You know. No one needs to tell you. You live in the cul-de-sac of unsatisfaction because you are worshiping yourself because maybe you've been growing numb because you've fallen into a moralistic pattern of living, which is what Jesus is warning us about. Don't do that. Your house isn't empty if you're in Christ. Cling to him. Enjoy him. Remember your new nature. Understand you have the Holy Spirit of God. And don't so much just do stuff. Pursue the one who bought you. Push headlong into him. I want to end with this. You know, a real mark of maturity, of gospel maturity, I think I've said this before, is when you stumble and fall, you run to Jesus and not from him. Because that creates worship. I think many of us live subconsciously this life where you stumble and fall and you run from him and you try to clean up your life until you're at a place where you feel like you can pursue him again. A mark of Christian maturity is God loves me even in this place today so I can get up and run to my good Father. I can run to my good Heavenly Father who loves me and purchased me and secured me based on zero act of my own today. And it causes and wells up worship and greater intimacy in your heart because you see, I can't believe he loves me in this state. That's why we love to take the Lord's Supper whenever we gather because we're reminded of, and it's a picture declaring and displaying, this is what I'm about. This is what saved me. It's the broken body and shed blood of Jesus alone. I don't have anything else to bring to the table, so I will eat and drink sweetly of this because it is what alone has purchased me. And so we're going we're gonna to come to the table before we do this. Just If this is your first time, you're wondering what we do, we just love to pray. This is a time for confession, meditation, examination of your heart. Right? The scriptures will say, you know, if you, if you just come to this mindlessly without even thinking about things, that brings more about judgment on yourself. So we want to take this seriously and love it and enjoy, celebrate Jesus for what he's done. It is a symbol, it is a proclamation of his death for us. And if you're not a Christian, we ask you not to take, but you would consider Jesus, that you would repent of sin, that you would ask God to reveal himself to you this morning. That he'd make you one of his own. You'd stop running the exhausting race of trying to achieve based on merit and performance and know that there is a God who loves and gifts righteousness, who doesn't need you to ascend to him, but descended to you in the person and work of his son. So let's pray, and then we'll roll into that. God, thank you that you're a God that saves. Thank you that you're a God that loves us. 
Father, I just want to pray in this moment that you would minister in ways that only the divine Holy Spirit of God can minister and serve and speak. Father, would you redeem fractured places this morning? Would you heal wounds? Would you allow us to see the glory that is in Jesus Christ, the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ, the mercy that is in Jesus Christ? Father, would you help us to be a people that pursue the person of Jesus and don't just avoid sin and don't just become moralists? Protect us from that clear warning of a delusional life and ultimately a damning life if it is not secured by you. Father, I pray as we take the Lord's Supper that it would minister to us, that we would enjoy you as we remember and reflect upon your great work for us. Thank you that we walked into this room the same that we leave, and that is holy, spotless, and blameless and above reproach before you based on the act of your Son. And then hear us as we worship you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.